Good evening, friends. And uh, for those in this part of the hemisphere, happy Sabbath. We're very glad for each of you that are here, both in the building and for those who may be watching on uh, a number of venues, uh, Facebook, Amazing Facts Facebook, and uh, GYC. Now, I like to start with an amazing fact. This one is a sobering fact. One of the most severe architectural failures in history was in 1995, and it had to do with the structural failure of the Sampung department store. The store was averaging 40,000 people a day were going through. Um, a very dubious contractor, Li Jun, had built it, used substandard material, and after bribing some officials, he was persuaded them to build it on an area that they knew was a garbage landfill. The ground was unstable. Engineers, when they tried to advise against it, he bribed them. Then after they approved the plans, he said, let's add more stories to it, sell more space, make more money, and let's even add a pool. And they said, oh, no, that won't work. He bribed them. And then when the building began to show signs in 1995 that something was wrong, it began to settle, gas lines were breaking. He wouldn't evacuate the building. Business was booming, didn't want to do it. And then even after a ceiling on the fifth floor started to collapse, he said, well, let's wait until after the work day. Some of the executives ran out of the building and they ordered people to move equipment that might be damaged out from under the cracks. Well, then there was a sudden catastrophic collapse. 500 people died, 937 were injured, and it can be traced back to building on the sand. They built on the wrong kind of ground. It's very important when it comes to your life that you're building on the right foundation. Jesus said, now we talked to you about where Jesus says in Matthew, wise men builds on the rock, foolish men builds on the sand. Luke shares the same parable, but he throws in a few other words that Jesus must have shared on another occasion. Luke 6:47, Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I'll show you who he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep. See, I told you my name's in the Bible. <laughs> and he laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently against that house, it could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built his house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. As in when the lost will say, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Oh, what a horrible thing it will be to realize you had a chance to live forever and you blew it because you built on the sand of popular opinions. You need to know what your foundation is. You know, at the heart of building on the rock is something very simple. What is your worldview? Your worldview describes your philosophy about life. It really covers three things, where you came from, which will help define what you're doing here and determine where you're going. You really need to have the answer to those questions. Where did you come from? What are you doing here? And where are you going? There's a lot of popular theories out there. Some are thinking, well, you've got the option that humans are just highly evolved naked apes 
that are, were just complex biological accidents. Another option is that we're really kind of dormant gods that are traveling through a series of reincarnations until we're sort of reabsorbed by the divine essence. I believe that for a while, reincarnation. Or we are moral creatures made in the image of God with free choice. Uh, everything's going to sort of fall into one of those options or a variation of that. So what is your worldview? What are you building on? What is your life built on? What's your philosophy about where we've come from, why we're here, and where we're going? I mentioned George Barna last night. He said that if you've got a Christian worldview, you'll be able to say yes to these eight points. Do absolute moral truths exist? That's one. Is absolute truth defined by the Bible? Did Jesus Christ live a sinless life? Is God the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe and does he still rule it today? Is salvation a gift from God that cannot be earned? Is Satan real? It's not just believing in Christ and God. Does a Christian have a responsibility to share her or his faith in Christ with other people? Is the Bible accurate in all of its teachings? Now, after posing those questions, they did a survey and they found that only 9% of people who call themselves born-again Christians could say yes to those eight definitions of having a Christian worldview. So many other things are shaping the view and their foundation is turning to sand. Little by little, it's eroding. Your belief about what the purpose of life is is going to define every other belief. What you think about death, sin, marriage, the Sabbath, the inspiration of Scripture, the words of Jesus, the Ten Commandments, family, health, everything is going to be connected with what is your basic foundational worldview. Now the false teachings that are given in this world, you know, the world is being told uh, that we've all evolved, and this is what I grew up believing. And I told you tonight that I would uh, share a little bit of my personal testimony and I'm going to weave that into what I was going through in my trying to understand what is the purpose of life, my worldview, and struggling to extricate myself from the false things I had been taught growing up. It's really hard when you're taught something from your youth to suddenly come to the epiphany of saying, I believed a lie all of my life. It's hard to admit that. Quickly, um, I was born. <laughs> a little girl was doing a book report one day and she wanted to make a big impression. Her book report was on Abraham Lincoln. And so she stood up and she said, Abraham Lincoln was born at a very early age in a log cabin he built with his own hands. <laughs> and so when you start to share your personal testimony, uh, you know, there's always a risk. Uh, you can become hypnotized by your own voice and um, elaborate a little too much. Uh, so, you know, pray for me as I share because I really want to open my heart and just share with you what I've discovered. Someone asked, how do you know your truth is, is true? Well, I'm going to tell you how I came to that conclusion. Uh, I was born with some unusual parents, total opposites. 
So it's kind of given me a, a, an understanding. My father was a conservative Republican redneck born in Oklahoma. My mother was a liberal hippie Democrat born in New York City. You've heard of the country mouse in the city. How they got married is still a mystery. Uh, they met in California. My father, I'll just talk about him for a moment. Uh, he was very poor, grew up. His father died when he was seven. He grew up during the Depression and uh, had three younger brothers. Went through the Dust Bowl. Some of you have read the book Grapes of Wrath. My dad was in that story somewhere. What I mean by that is he lived that experience of coming out of Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl and going to California looking for work. He taught himself to fly when he was still in his teens. Then World War II broke out and he enlisted, was a pilot in uh, Europe, fought during D-Day. Came back and started buying and selling airplanes. Uh, he bought an airplane. He would buy these government army surplus planes in Hawaii. He'd fill them with gas and fly them by himself all the way from Hawaii. And back then a DC-3 doesn't go that fast. And he'd have to be up 24 hours by himself, no autopilot, flying this plane. And um, he'd tie a belt around the stick and go back and switch the gas tanks because the regular tanks wouldn't hold enough fuel. But he'd buy them cheap in Hawaii because they couldn't get rid of them. And he started an airline. He eventually owned two airlines. Um, he used to own part of Western Airlines. I think he owned controlling his interest in Western Airlines. He was friends with people like Howard Hughes and Kurt Kerkorian and had a lot of money. At one point, he lived on an island in Miami Beach with, uh, we had a butler and a maid. Dad had, you know, Rolls Royce and, and uh, lived in a mansion and a yacht in the backyard. And other, I guess they're showing you pictures. I didn't know if they're, there's the yacht. Didn't know if they're going to show you. Yacht was called the Bachelor Party. And uh, matter of fact, we had three boats in our backyard, in our backyard on the water. Um, had a ski boat, the yacht, and I had a little sailboat. And uh, um, <laughs> a few years ago at Dad's funeral, I went back and showed Karen where I used to live. And uh, I, I, they, I had to get the security guard to let me on the island. It was quite a chore. And uh, I said, all right, I'm going to pull in the driveway. I'll roll down the window, take a picture real quick. And, and so as we pulled through the circular, it's a private island, you know, mansion, pulled through the driveway, Karen jumps out of the car and said, no, no, don't get out of the car. I said, someone lives here now. Sure enough, someone saw her and they came out. And they said, can I help you? Oh, my husband used to live here. Who's your father? George Batchelor. Oh, come on in. <laughs> He brought us in the house. Nothing had changed. He bought it from my father. He and his wife were accountants. They didn't care about the decor. They had not touched a thing in 30 years. It was the strangest thing I'd ever Shag carpet still on the floor. It was the strangest thing that we had ever seen. Anyway, I don't know why I went down that road. But um, yeah, deja vu all over again. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he had a lot of money. Um, but he wasn't happy. And on the island where I lived, I was telling the SALT students yesterday, you've heard of Firestone Tires. I dated Amy Firestone. And you've heard of like Hoover Vacuum Cleaners. 
or Chris Craft boats, all these kids were the kids that I played with growing up. But something that I noticed was they weren't very happy. My dad drank himself to sleep every night. He was married five times, fighting in the home, just a lot of unhappiness. He had been raised a Baptist, but after World War II, he thought, if there's a God, why did he allow all that suffering? You heard that question before. So he was pretty much an atheist. And uh, my mother was Jewish by birth, but you know, there's a lot of secular Jews. Very zealous about being Jewish, but didn't believe in God. And so I saw that happiness didn't come from money. Uh, my dad had all the toys, Learjets, yachts, Rolls Royce. I wasn't happy. Um, my mother on the other side, she was uh, the artsy one, very talented, very beautiful woman. She could sing, she could taught herself to play the guitar, she would write songs, she started writing songs for, um, I, I don't know if any of you here even remember these names at this generation, people like Frankie Avalon, Andy Williams, Elvis Presley, um, and, and a number of people recorded her her song, she has some standards that she wrote. She wrote scores for movies and um, moved to New York City and was doing plays. And, but she really made it as a film critic. She was hired by ABC to be the film critic on Good Morning America. And she founded the Beverly Hills uh, Film Critic Association, Hollywood Film Critic Association. And it's a very powerful position. Because if you say that a movie is good or bad, uh, they make millions more or less in ticket sales. So the critics were always, you know, getting gifts and free trips and things like that, sort of trying to bribe you. But um, mom knew a lot of people in Hollywood. I don't know if they'll have time to put any of these pictures up, but uh, I've got pictures of mom with Paul McCartney and Dustin Hoffman and Clint Eastwood and Sylvester Stallone and George Burns and Jimmy Stewart and just a lot of famous actors and actresses. Natalie Wood, Sally Field. There you go. There's Muhammad Ali, George Burns. You can flip through these quickly. I think I already, there's yeah, Sylvester Stallone, Paul McCartney. That's mom. That's what Warren Beatty and uh, you've got some others here. This is just during her film, Bob Hope, Natalie Wood. They kind of look alike, don't they? Sally Field, Roger Moore. So I just threw some of those up there, Paul Newman, Clint Eastwood. But because I, I tell people this, I go, yeah, sure. But when we were growing up in Southern California and in uh, New York City, it wasn't uncommon for these people to come to our homes. We had friends that were Academy Award winners. But something I observed is some of these people that were talented, rich, famous, they were miserable. A lot of them were on drugs. They were addicted. Some of them alcoholics. I, I remember I had a young friend. He was an actor, a very well-known child actor. Handsome, talented, unhappy, empty, locked himself in the garage, turned on the car and killed himself. And I thought, what a waste. And so I began to think, life doesn't make any sense, you know? Money doesn't bring happiness. Fame and beauty, popularity doesn't bring happiness. I thought, is everybody miserable? Now, when I was um, about seven years old, my parents divorced when I was three. I have one real brother that passed away, and I have a stepbrother still alive. And uh, I grew up in New York City. Um, I, 
life didn't make any sense. I got into a lot of trouble because I thought my worldview was we're born, you live a little while, you die, you turn into fertilizer. That's what I thought, you know. I thought, why are we here? There's no purpose. Just try and have as much fun as you can. I remember seeing a commercial on TV when I was a kid. It was a beer commercial. I still remember it was Schlitz beer commercial. And it said, you only go around once in life. Get all the gusto you can. And I wasn't sure what gusto was at that age, but I thought, I'm going to try and get all I can. And so I just started living a wild life. Um, I often thought of suicide because I just felt so empty. I was in trouble all the time. I went to 14 different schools. Matter of fact, they may have pictures up here. I went first to a military school. There I am. Now, just a little, you want to hear some trivia? I went to military school with Donald Trump. But I didn't know him, so don't hold me responsible for anything. <laughs> so he went to New York Military Academy. I don't ever remember seeing him. He's about 10 years older than I am. There's a couple pictures here, I think. That's me and a friend. Wait, see guy on the left, Bobby Boyer? That's me and Bobby Boyer. Bobby Boyer ended up working for Ronald Reagan. And if you ever see the picture where Ronald Reagan is shot in front of his limousine, Bobby is in that picture with him. And so I reconnected with Bobby after 40 years or something, so it was kind of fun. But um, any event, so I went to the strictest school in North America. I, I got into so much trouble. I was getting kicked out of all these schools because I was a very precocious young man. And you never would have thunk, huh? And so, um, you know, I was just looking for attention because my, my mother was so consumed with being famous and my father was so consumed with being rich that my brother and I, and my brother was sick, so he got more attention. I just felt like nobody noticed me. And so I was in and out. I went to 14 different schools before graduating high school. And so finally, my mother told my father, he needs more discipline. And actually, it was my father told my mother, he needs more discipline. And so they found New York Military Academy, and I went there, and it was the strictest school in North America. It's still around today. They had a rule for everything. Talk about legalism. You don't know what legalism is. <laughs> they would measure our underwear the way we folded it. They would measure the books on the shelf. We didn't measure them, but you had to stack them in rows, and everything in your closet had to be hung in perfect order, and our rooms were inspected every day but Sunday. And if they failed inspection, they tore your room apart and then you had to fix it up and still get to class on time or you got punished for that. And I mean, and if you talk back, this was back before they knew about those laws that said you can't hit the students and they would whip us. They slapped us around. I didn't know I could file a complaint back then. But I mean, they were rough. So I went there for a couple of years and then one summer I got into trouble. My mother said to my father, I had run away and I got arrested. And I was doing some stealing. I was using drugs. I should probably stop here and tell you that um, I remember my mother telling me, Doug, I know you're going to run into this out on the streets, and I just assume you did it at home. And so she rolled a joint and smoked it with me. My mom smoked cigarettes, but I always wondered about the funny cigarettes she was smoking. And after that, um, and sometimes she'd make, you know, hashish cookies or brownies and and uh, she said, I, if you're going to use it, use it at home. And she said, you know, I don't want to keep anything from your mother. was very open about life, talked openly about all kinds of things, way too young. 
And uh, so I, I, you know, I used to play as a kid, 42nd on Broadway. My mother would say, seven years old, go out and play, you and your brother. We just went out up and down the streets in New York. And, you know, I guess parents get arrested for not supervising your kids roaming the streets. But they just sent us out to play. All the parents did back then. And um, so I started using drugs at home. My brother couldn't smoke pot, so when Falcon, because he had cystic fibrosis, when he would come to visit, she'd make marijuana or hashish cookies for him. At one time, I took some of those to a school party and gave them to the teachers. <laughs> so, but don't, don't get any ideas. <laughs> but I was, yeah, I was a troublemaker. And so, um, and when I was living with Dad, I learned how to drink because dad in the mansion he had a bar one room was just a bar a big bar and his bar was better stocked than some you would find in a city and I could go in whenever I want the, nothing was locked up and I would bring my friends over when dad was at work and we would mix our own drinks and he never really knew he never confronted me on that because um, the butler would always restock the bar thinking that my father was drinking it my father never knew it was missing so I began, alcohol, by the way, was, gave me a lot more problems than all the other drugs put together. Alcohol is one of the most deadly drugs in North America. So I was in a lot of trouble. And uh, when you don't believe that you're created, most of the schools I went to taught evolution. And when you believe evolution, you essentially believe that everything around you is just sort of a biological accident. And I thought, you know, if people are unhappy and if you die and the pain is over, why not kill yourself? This is a very sobering discussion in this group because, you know, the highest suicide rate is among teenagers and young adults. It's especially serious in communist countries because they say there's no God. It's even worse. Uh, and if you're ever thinking that suicide is somehow going to make things better, it permanently seals a bad situation and you lose all of your options. But I used to play with suicide all the time. I'd climb to the top of um, these apartment buildings in New York, 20 stories up, and, and I'd get out on the roof. They used to leave it open. And I'd stand there and put my toes over the edge and I'd play a game where I'd lean out and see how far I could go before I felt my center of gravity. And I just think, why don't I just jump and end it all? Just be like going to sleep. I kind of wanted to get my parents' attention. I thought if I kill myself, I know they'll come to the funeral. I'll get their attention. It's kind of dumb, isn't it? Or my mother, I knew she took sleeping pills every night. And one day she was off. My brother had gone to live with my father for his health in Florida. And I thought, I just want to go to sleep. I was in trouble, depressed. Uh, you know, a lot of times I can look back now, just to be very honest with you look back now and I think sometimes I was depressed I thought life wasn't worth living and I thought I mean here I was healthy I was young I was semi-intelligent and I was ready to take my life and some of it was just hormones and you need a good night's sleep your whole perspective often changed the next day and I wonder how many people because they're just feeling really low and it's momentary they lose their lives so, my mother called me one day. She said she was thinking of suicide. I said, Mom, the nice thing about suicide is you can always postpone it. You might miss something tomorrow. Just wait one day at a time. She said that saved her later. But I remember I went to my mother's 
bathroom when she was gone. I got her sleeping pills out, and on the bottle it said, Valium, take one at bedtime. And I filled my hand with these pills, and I was getting ready to swallow them all, go to sleep, and never wake up. You ever felt that way? And uh, just before I took the pills, I, I thought, well, I better, Valium. It doesn't really say sleeping pills anywhere on the bottle. I was 13 back then. I thought, Valium. I think they're sleeping pills, but kind of a feminine sounding word. It could be medicine for ladies, and then I'd just get sick. <laughs> I said, I don't know exactly what this is. I mean, it could be anything you take at bedtime, and I don't know what that means. And so I was so afraid. I didn't want to get sick. I wanted to die. So I put them all back in the bottle, and I mean, there's a difference, isn't there? One reason I didn't jump is I, th I read in the paper one day about this man in New York City. He jumped nine stories and he lived through it, but he was all crippled up. And I thought, well, what, what if I fail? <laughs> I was failing in school. I might fail in suicide, and then I'd really be a failure. <laughs> and so I was afraid, you know, it wasn't going to work. Uh, but um, I, then I just said, well, look, why die doing something boring? I just started living as crazy as I could. And I was, I was drinking and, and smoking and using drugs and, and uh, I was in and out of jail. I started breaking into homes and stealing. I'd be down with my dad in Miami. I went back and forth between Florida and New York City. And um, when I was living with dad, um, all the millionaires' kids would get bored and we'd go break into the other millionaires' houses. And it was kind of funny because here we're living on an island and these people had extra security, the police in boats patrolling the island to figure out how the burglars were getting on the island. And it was all the kids of the millionaires. And they said, what do you want to do? Well, we broke into your house yesterday. Let's break into their house. <laughs> just bored. We were just spoiled and bored. And um, during this time, uh, I ran away from home several times. I was in and out of jail, and uh, I was arrested and incarcerated seven times. Uh, and I wasn't even 16 yet. Um, I remember once I was in jail for a week, and I wouldn't even tell them my real name because I didn't want to go back to my father and live in a mansion. I preferred being in a jail. I know it's hard to comprehend. They finally, my story didn't match. They figured out who I was, and, and my dad came to pick me up. Then he said, you can't go home because your, your mother-in-law or your stepmother, she just can't handle you anymore. And so my dad moved me into one of his hotels because I was such a problem. Um, so I ran away from home at 15. I moved to Boston. I got a phony driver's license that said I was much older. I was born in 57. I changed my learner's permit so I'd said 52. And I, mean, I didn't look nearly that old, but I got a license that said I was older. And then I got a job and um, moved to Boston, had my own apartment. I'm 16 years old. I was doing burglary, stealing cars, breaking into homes, and I had a part-time job as a security guard. <laughs> I, that's true. And I never stole from the places I was guarding because they trusted me. And so, you know, I thought I was a big shot. I'm walking around Boston. I got a weapon and, you know, and, and I was guarding places. But then during the day, I'd steal. Because in the middle of the day, you know, while everyone's at work, at school, you walk out of a house with a TV, they don't think anything. You do it at night, you look suspicious. During this time, I met a friend who was very religious. I still remember his name was Jerry. 
he was a security guard. He found out what I was doing for my day job. I said, Jerry, are you going to turn me in? He said, no, Doug, I don't need to turn you in. I said, God sees what you're doing. Your karma is going to get you. I said, karma? He said, yeah. Whatever you do comes back. What goes around comes around. Now, you know, the Bible says something similar. It says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And with what measure you meet, it'll be measured back to you. It's a little different. I said, ah, there's no God. I said, I stole that TV and I sold it. I didn't get caught. Nothing happened. Nothing's going to happen. He said, you'll see. I'll pray for you. <laughs> and a few days later, I woke up in my apartment in Boston and my door was open and my TV was gone <laughs> and my radio. And I was mad. I called the police right away. <laughs> I was so upset that these said, they got to do something about crime in our neighborhood. <laughs> Everything was going wrong. I stole a car in Boston and took it to New York and it broke down in New York. I had to hitchhike back in the rain. I'd steal something. My friends were thieves. They would steal it from me. I'd steal something and while I was high or drunk and I'd hide it, I'd wake up, forget where I hid it. I would steal something and like, a, you know, a stereo or something. I almost died getting back to my place. I'd plug it in. It was broken. I stole a broken stereo. And I started thinking, wow, this is really strange. And what convinced me there was a God was a little thing. I went to someone's home and I stole a box of Krusty's Instant Pancake Mix. And I did it because it was the whole wheat variety and I was very health conscious. <laughs> if you're a hippie, I mean, you could drink and smoke pot and you could do all kinds of things wrong. You don't have to shower, but make sure you have whole wheat, <laughs> you know. And so I stole it and I still remember it. On the top of the box, this is before they had the barcode, they stamped it with a little round price tag and it said $1.19. That same day while I was gone, some friends came to my place uninvited. They took my brand new jar of Tang Instant Breakfast Drink. Anyone still know what that is? It's powdered orange juice. And they drank the whole thing and thereby the empty jar was the lid and it said $1.19. And I looked at the pancake mix and I looked at the stolen tang and I said, crime doesn't pay. There must be a God. And that was really a struggle for me because once I realized that there must be a God, I started thinking, well, if there's a God, then maybe there's a purpose to life. Now, this was uh, one of the big battles in my life is trying to figure out what am I doing here? Where am I going? Um, during this time, while I'm living in Boston, I began to explore all these Eastern religions. I started meditating. The Beatles were big back then, you know, and they started getting into the Eastern religions. And uh, believe it or not, I had long hair back then. Um, yeah, I went through transcendental meditation, Buddhism. I went to two different Catholic schools. I went to Jewish schools. I went to public schools. I even went to a school that has no rules. It's called a free school. My mother said he needs more freedom. And so they sent me to a school that had three rules. No sex, no fighting, no drugs, and nobody paid attention to the three rules they did have. <laughs> you didn't have to go to class if you didn't want to. You did not have to uh, wake up if you didn't want to. I mean. They figured it was a free school environment. So I went from the military school to Pinehenge. That school lasted five years. 
And uh, I, I even reconnected with a few of the people that went there. So I've had all the different extremes. And none of it brought happiness. But everyone in the hippie age back then, we were all getting into all the Eastern religions. And, and, uh, and there's elements of truth in all religions. I mean, I learned some things I think were valuable. But I was still empty. So during this time, my father came to see me in Boston. He said, Doug, I found a school. He said, you've you got to go back to school. So you know, your brother's sick. I've got these companies. He said, you've got to get an education. And he said, um, it's a school on a boat. The boat sails around the world. It's actually a pair of boats that sail around the world. It was called Flint School Abroad. They made a movie about one of the sister schools like this that was, uh, and the boat actually went down in a storm. And um, he said, there's girls, you'll see the world. And I started going, all right. He said, you've got to do it. And he was pleading with me. I said, all right. So right then he got me a passport picture and um, he flew me to uh, Italy where I got on this boat, and I found out I'd sort of been tricked. The, um, the school was really a special school for the children of politicians and millionaires that had gotten wrapped up in different cults and drugs to sort of take them out of their environment and help them to get clean and give them an education. And the school taught atheism. The school taught evolution. And now I was believing there was a God, and I was starting to believe variations of some kind of creation. And uh, it was very interesting because uh, they took away your passport. You, you, know, you couldn't just run away in this school because you get arrested in Italy or Spain or somewhere. They couldn't always get you out. But the boat we were on was about 150 feet long, and we were sailing one day from northern Africa to Spain. We went to some of the places where the Apostle Paul went and so I saw, yeah, that's actually, that's actually a picture of the two boats right there from their website. Um, and we were sailing across the ocean and we got into a serious storm around Christmas time. And uh, the wind was howling, the waves were breaking over the ship, the mainsail ripped, you could yell at a person a few feet away from you and they couldn't hear you. Water started coming in. The boat is made of steel. That made me really nervous. And uh, everything underneath the boat, it looked like a giant hand had taken the ship, turned it upside down and shook it and put it back down again because the books, the mattresses, everything was helter-skelter inside the boat. Everybody's seasick. The captain is seasick. Waves would go right over the bow of the boat and wash from one end of the boat to the other end and things were washing overboard. Captain said the water was very cold that time of year. Captain said, if you fall over at night in this weather, we're going to mark the spot. We can't risk turning around in these waves. And uh, what do you think atheists start to do when they think they're going to die? Praying. It's amazing. Nobody needs any lessons. Everybody knows what to pray for and what to ask. And um, uh, they're praying and making promises. People know what they've done wrong because they know what to confess when they think they're going to die. Making promises. Fear is the wrong reason to serve God. You've got to serve God because you love Him. And so uh, I was praying and making promises, but obviously we got through the storm. First thing I did when I got to Spain is I came home from Christmas, I ran away again. And I said, I'm not going back to that school. Too many rules. Now I began to look for God in nature. I was reading about the American Indian religions and I thought, you know, I could take enough hallucinogenics and be at one with God.
and LSD and mushrooms and things. And um, I started hitchhiking across the country from Miami. It was Christmas time. I had Florida clothing on, very thin. I got stuck in Oklahoma. I lost all my money the day before at a bar somewhere drinking and playing pool in Virginia. I was sick. I was out on the highway for hours begging for a ride. You know, when you're hitchhiking, you're just basically saying, please help me, please help me. And they, every time they go by, they're basically saying no. And if you're sensitive, you can feel a lot of rejection when that happens. On an interstate, that's a lot of rejection going by. You know, I took it personal. What's wrong with me? Why can't you? You got room in your car. You got the heater on. I'm, do I look that bad? You know, and so you stand there for hours and these things are going through your head. And I got so desperate. At times I'd get on my knees like this as cars went by. And I'd pray. Finally, after hours, and I'm freezing, I'm sick, I'm hungry, I prayed. And I said, Lord, something to this effect, I said, I know I'm a rotten person. And I was very selfish. Um, you know, when I was stealing, I had a friend that got a brand new bike, I was a millionaire's kid, got a brand new bike, very expensive bike, for his birthday. I broke into his house, I stole it, I sold it to another friend who knew it was a hot bike, so he repainted it, changed the serial number on it. I then stole it from him, and I sold it to someone else. <laughs> now you're laughing, but think about that. I didn't care about anybody. Hey, you've got to be pretty low to do that with your friends. So when I was telling the Lord, I know I've been a really rotten person. I really was. And I said, will you please forgive me? I'd heard enough about God that I heard that he forgives. I said, please forgive me. And I asked God for four things. I said, help me get a ride to where I'm going. I still had like 1,500 miles, 2,000 miles to go. I said, help me get uh, some food. I was hungry. Help me get some money. I was broke. I prayed he'd give me a ride with someone normal because I kept getting picked up by crazy people. I, you know, I could pick up by these drunks and would say, hey, watch this, we can drive with our lights off. <laughs> I got picked up by two college students that were smoking so much pot that they couldn't see out the windshield and they ran across the median on the highway into oncoming traffic. <laughs> so you think it's dangerous to pick up hitchhikers, it's dangerous to hitchhike. <laughs> and so I said, please, give me a ride with someone normal. I'd been there for hours right after I prayed that prayer the next vehicle stopped. It was a white van. The guy picked me up. He took me 2,000 miles to the door of where I was going in Palm Springs. He fed me all the way out there. I didn't ask him to. He gave me $40 when he dropped me off that I didn't ask for. I also did not ask him to preach to me all the way from Oklahoma <laughs> to California. He was a born-again Christian, and he was so excited, and he picked up other hitchhikers, and he preached to them, and he, he was just full of the joy of the Lord, and I had to ride along and just listen to him, you know, hour after hour. Sometimes I pretend I was asleep just so he wouldn't preach to me. I thought the Bible was a fairy tale. My mother, with her Jewish background, she said, Christians are the ones who've been the biggest problem for the Jews. They cause all the wars. I mean, I, she said, you know... I won't tell you everything my mom said, but I just was raised with a very cynical view of the Bible. I thought the Bible is just a myth. So I listened to him, but I was sure that we were all reincarnated. And uh, when he dropped me off, I now was looking for God through nature. 
Oh, by the way, you know, I still pick up hitchhikers uh, because I found it's a great way to witness to people. And you wait until you're going down the highway and you get to about 65 miles an hour and you turn and you make your gospel presentation and then you say, wouldn't you like to accept Jesus? And then you accelerate. <laughs> and just look at them. <laughs> a lot of people have found the Lord in my car. But um, so I now wanted to find God through, through nature and I moved up into the mountains in this very remote desert mountains above Palm Springs. Some of you are from Southern California you know, Mount San Jacinto, and uh, it's an 11,000-foot mountain. Uh, and I, I moved halfway up the mountain, and I found a cave up there that I'd actually found hitchhiking around at 15, and I took off all my clothes. I thought, I want to be natural, find God through nature. And I lived like a hermit. And I lived up there off and on for about a year and a half. And it was, that's my cave. Now, my brother actually came to visit me once, and he took that picture. And right outside of my cave, I don't know if the next picture is going to show this. I, yeah, there's my cat, Stranger. And you can see, I call him Stranger. He just showed up one day. And he lived with me. And uh, he, yeah, he'd bring me like dead squirrels at night and put them on my sleeping bag. <laughs> and, and right there, I had a waterfall out in the desert and a big pool. And um, I'd hike to town once or twice a week and I'd panhandle. Or I'd dig in the garbage can behind the market for food. And I should probably just mention here, um, when my father found out, I mean, my father worked so hard because he was so poor when he was young, so his kids wouldn't suffer like he did. How do you think he felt when he found out that I was digging in the garbage for food? How do you think your heavenly father feels when we go to the garbage of the devil when he's given his son that you might have real everlasting life. Anyway, the miracle I didn't mention is I moved up into the mountains in this cave and somebody who had camped in the cave before, other people had stayed there, it was a great place. Um, you ever heard someone say, where have you been? Under a rock? Well, I did. I lived under a rock. <laughs> My cave was a humongous boulder and um, I lived underneath this great big boulder. Boulder, I don't think you'd fit it in this room. It was huge. And there was a big concave under there. But I always felt very safe whenever there were storms or flash floods because there was nothing that was going to move this rock. We used to have earthquakes in Southern California. Very steep canyon walls. All the rocks would break loose and start to fall down. I'd get under my rock and I'd be safe because <laughs> it was pretty substantial. But uh, there was a Bible in the cave. And I started reading the Bible so I could argue with Christians. I, you know, I'd meet these, we called them Jesus freaks back then. These were like hippies that were still half high and they had found the Lord. And then they'd want to witness to you. And you didn't know if they really believed or they were just hallucinating. And they just were so on fire. And they'd start quoting the Bible and I, frankly I felt ignorant. And so um, I thought I'm going to read the Bible so I can argue with Christians. And I'll tell you, uh, I'd been reading a lot of Eastern books, a lot of different religions. I'd never really read the Bible. And I started reading the Bible and I found out, wow, I don't know anything about the Bible. I, I got through Genesis and part of Exodus. When they started building the temple, it started getting boring for me. So I told one of my Christian friends, he said, no, Doug, you've got to jump to the gospel. Go to the New Testament. And he gave me a newer translation. And I went to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I read through the whole New Testament. Every morning I'd make banana bread from the old bananas I got from the market, behind the market. 
And uh, I'd read the Bible. And I don't know exactly where it happened, but somewhere reading through the Gospels about Jesus, my whole world was shaken because it was so different from anything I'd heard in any other religion. I thought I knew about Jesus. I didn't know anything. One thing that amazed me is I'd read these quotes. Turn the other cheek. I'd heard that all my life. And I'd go, oh, Jesus said that. I'd heard it. Or you'd read, go the second mile. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And all these things I'd heard people quote all my life. I said, oh, that's in the Bible. I had handwriting on the wall. I had no idea. At your wit's end. I had no idea all of that was in the Bible. And so I said, wow, this is a very quoted book. <laughs> and then when I get, was reading about Jesus, it just sounded so real because here you had the testimony of all these different witnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I thought, but I've heard that Jesus never really lived. And I went and looked in the library and none of the encyclopedias contest that he lived. So as C.S. Lewis said, in my mind, I didn't phrase it as well as C.S. Lewis, but I went through the same process of saying you've got three options. Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or Lord. I couldn't believe that he was lying because he, his whole life was about truth. He died in defense of truth. He could have lied and saved his life. He died for what he believed. So you can't question his sincerity. I couldn't accept that he was out of his mind because he said the most relevant, profound things I'd ever heard. It's like those who came back said, never man spake like this man. I, I couldn't believe the words and how it was reaching into my soul. And that leaves you with one other option. He's the Lord. And if the Bible's true, it would mean that God came to the earth in the form of a man to show us what God is like to show us how to live, and then because he loves us, to die in our place so that we will not be executed for our sins because he desperately wants us to live. And I, you know, I'm summarizing very quickly a process that took months of reading the Bible, but ultimately I had to say, what am I going to do? And I got on my knees there up in the mountain in the cave. I didn't know how to pray. No one really led me precisely in how to pray. But I said, Lord, uh, I, I know I've been a terrible person. I believe that Jesus is real. I still have doubts. But will you come into my heart? Will you forgive my sins? Will you give me some purpose for living? And uh, everything, that was the point. Everything began to change when I surrendered my life to God. And I told the Lord, I said, I'm not making any promises because I'm weak. And I don't know if I can keep your commandments. But if you're real and you want to save me, you're going to have to do it. And I figure if you died to save me, it must be possible to be saved, but you're going to have to do something for me. And God came into my life. Now, when I came to the Lord, I was drinking, smoking, running around naked up in the mountains. I'm cursing. I'm living immorally. I'm still shoplifting. I didn't completely give up crime right away because I figured these big corporations deserve it. That's just, I know. <laughs> and so... I had all this sin in my life. I was 17 years old, but the Lord came into my heart and things began to change. I found myself, I stopped cursing. He delivered me from the drugs, from the alcohol, from the cigarettes. And um, yeah, that's a picture. You, can I tell you a quick story? I know, I don't know, it's quitting time. You want to hear a quick story? Yes. Of course, you're going to say that. After I accepted the Lord, I felt this joy. I started telling everybody. And I said, Lord, I'm up here in the mountains. 
in a cave. I just feel like I want to tell everyone about you, and I don't know how that's going to happen, Lord, but I just, this is such a, why didn't I know about you? I want to tell everybody, Lord, if you want me to tell other people about you, give me an opportunity. I don't know how it'll happen. I live in a cave. So I'd hike to town, uh, you know, once or twice a week. I called my mother, collect, in Beverly Hills. And mom said, Doug, I'm glad you called. You're never going to believe it. But I've got a film crew from NBC that wants to fly up to your cave in a helicopter and interview you. Is that okay? I said, yeah. NBC flew up to my cave and they brought my mother. Do you know years later, National Geographic flew me up to my cave again? So at the expense of the media, I've gone to my cave twice now. I'm ready for another trip. But that's when that picture was taken. Three times that day on national television. This is back when there were only three channels. You had ABC, CBS, NBC. I was able to tell people about my faith. They said, a millionaire's son is living up in a cave in the mountains of Southern California. And they built this thing up and they said, tell us why. I said, Lord, boy, when someone prays and says, give me an opportunity, you really give them an opportunity. <laughs> I said, here I'm a hermit living in a cave and you send a national film crew. So I could tell you a, a thousand stories about how I know that God is real. Miracles that have happened. And I know he's got a plan for your life. And he wants to activate that plan. If you had seen me back then and you were betting, you'd never guess. That's going to be a Seventh-day Adventist evangelist. He's got a plan for you. But he'll activate that plan only when you trust him with your life. You try to take the wheel and you're going to run off the road over and over again. When you surrender to his will, that's when things get really exciting. Now, when you came in, you may have noticed... There's a card on your seat. And I'd like to, before I close with prayer, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Maybe the Holy Spirit has spoken to you tonight and you say, you know, I've been struggling with the decision to surrender my life to Jesus, but I'm ready to do that now. I tell you, you've got everything to gain by saying yes to Jesus and you can have everything to lose by telling him to wait. And it makes a decision, it makes a difference if you make a decision in a tangible way. You might be saying, Pastor Doug, why do we have to do this? Because you will be affected by your own choice right now. You're really saying, Lord, I want to express that I'm making a decision to serve you. Would you take this card, put your name on there. You might put a phone or an email address. It'd be great to have a way to contact you. And just check the boxes here and say, I believe that salvation comes only by grace through faith in Jesus. I believe that I can be saved by his grace. Mark that. Next one's a big question. I want to repent of my sins and surrender my life to Jesus. Don't worry that you don't know everything that is involved in doing that. God does not expect you to understand it all. But if in childlike faith you tonight want to say, Lord, I'm going to trust you. And I want to do that. I'm sorry for my sins. I want to be forgiven. Maybe some of you followed the Lord earlier in your lives, but you've gotten busy and you've drifted away. And you need an opportunity to return. Now is a good opportunity. You would want to check that third box. You want to recommit your life to the Lord. Some of you might be struggling right now and you're thinking, oh, Doug, I, I know, I feel this battle in my heart. I need to make the decision Pray for me that I can make that commitment. 
and we will. Some of you have maybe sort of believed all your lives and you said, yeah, I want to follow Jesus, but you've never sealed it by being baptized. You know, the Lord said, go teach all nations, baptizing them. Baptism is like marriage for a Christian, like a wedding ceremony for a married couple. It's the public expression that I am wanting to be filled with the Spirit and follow Him. You can make that decision tonight. And I want to pray for you. Matter of fact, before we close with prayer, and then when you leave the building tonight, you can give your cards to the ushers that are at the door. It'll tell us how to pray for you. But even before we have our closing prayer, if there's some of you here, and I want to be specific, and you've not made a decision before to fully surrender your life to the Lord, but you want to do that tonight, would you be willing to stand in His presence and say, Lord, I'm going to do that now. I've never fully surrendered to you, but I want to do that now. I need to do that now. Don't worry about other people that are here. I invite people publicly to make that decision because Jesus died for you publicly. Would you be willing to stand? Some of you, you may be going through the motions of being a Christian, but you've not sealed your decision. If you're going to stand up for Jesus in your life, you shouldn't be afraid now. There's some here, the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, and you've never really made that surrender. I know there's some of you feeling that now. The Holy Spirit just impressed me that some of you are struggling. You've gone, maybe even had a Christian home, Christian family. But you know in your heart, you've never said, oh Lord, I really want to make that decision to live completely for you. Even those in the balcony, who will make that decision now? You might feel a battle going on right now between your Jesus and your devil, and you've got the tie-breaking vote. Stand in his presence if that's your desire. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Praise the Lord. See, please remain standing for a moment. I want to pray for you. There's others struggling. I, I believe it. It always takes the courage of one or two to stand up and people realize, you know, we're all sinners. You want to make that decision tonight. You've not made it. Maybe you're at the fork in the road and you realize you're being pulled the wrong way and tonight you want to seal your decision to get on the right way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Would you like to stand in his presence? Praise the Lord. I see you. I see some in the balcony. Praise God. Amen. How many of you maybe have felt that you're walking too close to the line of the world and you know you need to draw closer to Jesus? Would you be willing to stand as we have our closing prayer? I know that was kind of general, huh? Let's pray together. Loving Lord, I pray that we can be building on the rock. Help us to realize that the only worldview that's going to bring us eternity is the one that you provided in your word. And Jesus is the word. Lord, we've all sinned, and we know there's only one way to find forgiveness, and that's through the blood of your Son. Lord, we accept his life in our behalf. We accept him as the revelation of what your Father is like and how we should live in this life. Help each person here to truly make Jesus their Lord. 
So we thank you, Lord. We pray your blessing on these meetings. Please pour out your spirit. And um, I pray that you just bless this campus, each student, the faculty, teachers, pastors, and thank you for the Sabbath time. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.